0: Welcome to a belated Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is, what, Tuesday, March 22nd, and uh, yeah, I've had a busy couple days and haven't been feeling real well either, so was kind of waiting for my voice and congestion to get under control before I tackled this podcast, otherwise it would be almost unlistenable. So feeling a little bit better today. Uh, I am in uh, Missoula, Montana, actually, seeing dealers this week are, are attempting to anyway, um, health, uh, allowing, I guess. And, uh, I'd met, never been up here before. I've never been to Montana. So, um, it was a trip I've really been looking forward to. I wish I felt a little better for it. Um, but starting to come around this afternoon and looking forward to, uh, seeing some of our key accounts in the area. Um, I was in Indianapolis last weekend for the supercross, uh, Steve Mathis and Jason Wygant We're not there. Thank you guys for uh, leaving me by my lonesome there. But it was a pretty good weekend. Um, the weather sucked, so I'll say that. It was uh, rainy and windy and crappy all day and all night um, and never really got any better. And anytime you went outside from the morning to the afternoon to after the race when I was going to my car, it was just crap. So that was a bummer because they actually had the FanFest there. And we haven't always been so fortunate to have fan fest at Indy. So... I was disappointed for you know the, the spectators and fans that all came from the Midwest to watch because they don't always get that opportunity. And I know for like fly racing and Western Power Sports, we have our hospitality area. We were very limited in what we had going on. We only had one side of the truck open and everything was kind of closed in because of the wind and the rain. So it just wasn't the same type of atmosphere that I think, you know, we we can typically get. You know, all the race semis had they're complete, you know, all the curtains were down and they were just kind of socked in to protect themselves from the wind and the rain. So the fans walking around don't get to see the riders. They don't get to see the bikes. They don't get to see the mechanics working on stuff in between practices, which is a really cool part of the sport. That's, you know, one of the things that I think differentiates, you know, Supercross and Motocross from other sports is the accessibility. And we are, we've been losing some of that because of COVID, which I can understand. Um, you know, not having open houses, not having, um, the autograph sessions. That's certainly been a negative for fans. It's not necessarily a negative for riders. I'll be honest. They don't love that part. Um, but for the fans, for kids, for people that are spending their hard earned dollars to come to the races, that's a pretty big bummer. So we've lost some of that. And then you get a weekend like Indy where the weather just completely takes that away entirely. Like you can't see anything because, you know, guys are either down in the, the bowels of the stadium and stay down there or their trucks are completely uh, closed up because of the, uh, you know, inclement weather. So good thing the racing on the track was exciting. Um, we had nice battles all day, all night, uh, both classes, and uh, we will get into that. Before we do, let's thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Pro Glow Wash, and we'll have the question of the week this week, Grant Stone Boots, and, of course, my day job, Fly Racing. So, getting into the 250 class. I mean, Jet just keeps keeps getting it done, right? And this one wasn't easy. I thought Cameron McAdoo gave him everything he wanted, and if, if Jet wasn't the phenom that he is, I think McAdoo wins that because Cameron had a pace advantage in the first half of the race. He was more aggressive. He was willing to take more risk. And that's not always a good thing. But in this scenario, it was working for McAdoo. And, you know, he straight up passed Jet. And we have not seen that very often throughout Jet's career. Um, you know, I, I know it's happened early on, you know, early years, early races, but once he kind of got on a roll last summer and started winning races, and I think his his maturity level ramped up quickly and his confidence correspondingly went up with that we haven't seen many people be able to just go up and straight up pass him you know i guess Mart outdoors was a guy that could really challenge him and give him anything he wanted but in supercross this year it hasn't really been that way jet has felt like he's been in control you know when he needed to go faster he could um but he's been managing the races otherwise and then you see mcadoo pass him And it put Jet into a precarious spot, right? Because I don't think Jet really was that comfortable on the track. I think he was at a level where he's like, okay, I can hold this level. But if I go past this, the risk level goes up substantially. Well, of course he wants to win. And when McAdoo goes around him, he's a racer for one and he's 18 years old for two. So he's like, okay, well, I got to pick it up because I need to win this race. And I think that was the most impressive thing is he was able to find McAdoo's pace, pass him back, and then just hold it. And he didn't have to do anything too crazy, right? He had to go back to blitzing the whoops, which he had gotten away from. I don't think he really wanted to blitz the whoops in the main event unless he had to. Well, McAdoo forced that because if he continued to jump through the whoops, make no mistake, McAdoo would have won the race. So the ability for Jet in the moment to... Absorb what's happening around him, right? He figured out what McAdoo was doing. He still blitzing the whoops. He had really good pace in a few sections. He was attacking the racetrack where Jet was kind of letting the race come to him, if that makes sense. And Jet absorbed all that and said, okay, well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to up the risk profile here if I want to win. And I think Jet saw that as a risk willing to take. You know, everybody is assessing their own risk level during the race, right? And um I kind of touched on this last week is like I could have gone faster in my own racing career, but I probably would have crashed. That's you know, I was pushing the limit of where I felt like I was gonna finish the race without crashing. This is as fast as I can go without going over the line. Well Jet seems to be able to go his line seems to be really far out there, right? He seems to have a lot of room before he's going to get himself into trouble and that's a really difficult dynamic for the rest of the 250 class to deal with, and it probably will be something that the 450 class is going to have a hard time dealing with one day, is because Jet is good enough to win races without really taking too much risk. And I liken it to what I'm seeing with Eli Tomac in the 450 class, and I get it, there are different parts of their career, age is different, accomplishments are different, bikes are, everything's different, but... In that in that aspect alone where when Tomac's winning these four fifty races right now, I don't think he's really on the edge. I don't see him taking big risks or taking big chances. I think he's just letting kind of the race unfold. And when he needs to push a little bit, he pushes a little bit, but the rest of the time, he's just putting steady laps in. And that is that's the sign of a guy that's going to win a lot of races and win a lot of championships. And you're seeing Tomac do that, you're seeing Jet develop into that, and that's I think what is the most attractive about Jet's career so far is that ability. Because we've seen guys be able to go fast. Like being able to go fast is not uncommon. Right? We whether it's Austin Forkner or just go down the line, there are tons of guys that can go really fast, but they can't eliminate the volatility out of their riding. That's the problem, is that there's so much up and down within that, you know, the the good and the bad. They just can't do it week in and week out without, you know, every fifth race having a crash or something go, like, seriously wrong. Where the legends, the guys like Carmichael and I don't know, Stu, Stu's his own kind of unique animal because he was just so dominant. But he, cra- he did crash a lot. But Chad Reed and McGrath, and think about all the, the guys that just won a lot consistently, and they didn't have all of that variance in their results. I mean, you, Ryan Dungey is another guy like that where he was just, he could ride at the very top level of anybody in the world, but he wasn't really on the edge of crashing. Villapoto, the same way, right? And that's, a, that's just a, a unique talent and a unique ability that not everybody has, and I see it in Jet. I see it already. He's only 18, and, and I get it. Everybody understands how good Jet is. I'm not pretending that I'm discovering some, uh, you know, unearthing some gem here, some diamond in the rough. Like, he's already there, um, but I guess I'm just really coming around to what he is going to develop into. You know, flash forward from 18, go to Jet at 22 to 25. I think you're going to see a guy that has won dozens of races in the 450 class and multiple championships. That's, that's just what I think is coming. Uh, I did touch on McAdoo. I thought it was a, a great ride for him. Um, unfortunately, he's just up against Jet, and that's going to be tough for anybody. I, I don't care who it is, you know, relatively. Uh, in, the, in the 250 class, you're going to have a tough time dealing with Jet Lawrence, and that's going to continue into this summer as well and into next year. Um, I only see Jet getting better from here. Pierce Brown, nice bounce back because he had a huge crash uh, in that heat race and to, to bounce back and still, you know, get up there and, and finish where he needs to finish and do all those things right after a huge get off. Cause I didn't even think he was going to race. Um, he goes out and wins the LCQ and you're kind of like, okay, he's got a terrible gate pick now. How is that going to sort itself out? And to his credit, he was able to overcome adversity. The one thing I would say is you can't keep crashing like this. And, and Pierce Brown is developing. We're seeing him get better and better. Like this year, he's much better than he was last year, right? That's that's easy for anyone to see. But if he keeps having these huge crashes like he did at Arlington and like he did this weekend, he's going to hurt himself. Like one of those times, he's not going to get up. And that will put you behind again. Then you have to work through rehab of whatever injury you sustain. And then you have to get back up to speed and get yourself back up to shape and Meanwhile, all the guys you're racing against, the McAdoo's and whoever else on the West Coast, all those guys are, they're improving continuously. They're just showing continuous improvement and momentum and getting in better shape. That's the challenge. That's why you can't continue to get hurt. Like what Forkner's dealing with is because while you're sitting on the sideline time after time, after time, those guys are just getting better and better and better. And their fitness base is getting stronger. And, you know, we've talked about this on multiple shows, but a guy like Dungey, that's what made him so difficult to beat was he rarely got hurt, and he just got stronger and stronger. And, that you know, that momentum snowball, it can get rolling, and it's really hard to stop. If you're coming into a series and you haven't been racing because you've been injured, trying to go deal with a guy who has multiple seasons of just, you know, built-up work behind him it's tough to deal with. And I, and I speak from experience on this because I know how it felt for myself when I had gone through a few years in a row of no serious injury. You didn't really have to work that hard because you had all of this fitness base and your pace was already up and everything was just firing, right? Every cylinder was firing. You come off an injury and your fitness base goes to zero, you have, you have some sort of weak spot, whether it's you break your leg or your shoulder or your arm, something's weak, right? So you're overcompensating for that, you can't ride, you're rusty, and for me, it took me a long time to get back up to speed, let alone the fitness side, but just get my riding pace back up took me a really long time. So it's just one of those things where, for Pierce Brown, I worry that these crashes could upend all of this momentum he has going his way. So I got way off topic there, but when I see Pierce continue to hit the ground that hard, that's what immediately pops in my mind is you got to, you got to cut that out of your game because look around you look at Forkner and look at, you know, Hunter Lawrence almost had a big one, but that's been the story of Hunter Lawrence's career too, right? He has been setback after setback with shoulder injuries and everything else that can derail you. That can really set you back and your goals um, can really get just completely, you know, pushed to the side because of injury, right? And thankfully for Pierce he's showing a ton of promise this year. So I think if you're you know, Red Bull Gas Gas or whoever he ends up riding for stays where he's at, whatever ends up happening, teams are like, Oh yeah, well we need to keep him because look at how good he is, right? That's that's the upside for Pierce but Um, it can go the other way quickly, man. You get injuries, you rack up injuries, a bunch in a row and people start to lose hope in you pretty quickly. The other, only other note I had on the two hundred and fifty class was poor Phil Nicoletti. Oh man. I, I felt terrible for him. Um, you know, Weege and Steve are super close with him. I'm not as close. Like we'll, we'll talk at the race or whatever, but, um, not as tight with him as those guys are, but I did feel horrible for him. I have gone through what he did Uh, in 1999, which God, that's so long ago, but 1999, I was racing 125 East, which is the same series that fills in right now. And the first two rounds, I went eight, seven at uh, Tampa and Atlanta and Daytona was the third round. So I was in sixth in points, feeling good, super confident. I go into Daytona and everything goes wrong. I crash on the start of the heat race. I ride horrifically bad in the LCQ and don't get in. And I go from sixth in points to, I don't even know, like really bad. Just blew up my season, in my mind anyway, right? I was devastated leaving Daytona. And so I know how Phil felt, right? He was riding, he just had a bad day. And that's what happened to me at Daytona. Everything had been going right for you this season. He's riding better than we've seen him ride in a really long time. Was the same for me. And nothing went right. So I look for Phil to, uh, to bounce back when we get um, back to the East Coast, right? The, the toughest part for Phil is that he's got to sit out right now. He uh, doesn't get to go race Seattle and right the wrong. That's the toughest part is you don't get immediate redemption um, where you can just go ride for a few days, get back to the race and fix it. And then everything's, you know, the way it should be. The waiting is the hardest part, so uh, I felt really bad for Phil, but he'll be fine. He just needs to get back out there. There's a lot of chaos in this class. There's going to be more crashing and um, way you know, a lot of ups and downs as far as who he's racing against for points. So he just needs to uh, to finish strong the rest of the rounds and he'll be just fine. So jumping into the 250 class, or sorry, 450 class, we do the power rankings on this podcast, and uh, for you longtime listeners, you understand that it's there's some long term viewpoints here and then it has a little bit of uh you know short-term variance too i try to factor in recency uh in it but i don't i don't let it rule me right i just because a guy gets third on a particular weekend i'm not moving him up five spots i just don't do that i try to take a little bit a you know broader picture look at maybe were there external factors as to why a guy got third you know maybe marvin muscan perfect example why did he get third not saying he rode poorly but maybe there was a couple other things going on, right? So I'm not gonna just be victim of the moment and move somebody up and down my list crazily because of one week. So without further ado, let's jump into this. Number 10, Vince Freezy, And this is the first time Vince has ever been in the, uh, the power rankings. I typically don't like to put 250 Supercross riders in the power rankings and Christian Craig, has been a victim of that in the past, not making it in the power rankings. But I'm putting freezy in because I think he deserves to, based off of his riding. For one and two, he's a long-time 450 guy, right? Just because he decided to ride 250 this year doesn't mean he's not a 450 guy. And I think he deserves some credit. You know, look at his 250 results, and then look at two back-to-back top tens in the 450 class. Um, he's just getting it done across the board in both classes, and. I didn't see him do anything out of line for the last couple weeks, which is all I want to see. I don't, you know, there's been a lot of chatter between me and him and Mike Genova and myself and everybody concerning me and Vince Friese and whatever, right? He is a hot button topic for, for supercross racing and that's fine. I have been very critical of him in the past and I feel like deservedly so I don't take anything back I've ever said about him or concerning his racing. But I also want to be fair, and when I see him riding really well, I want to make note of that, and that's what I see right now. I see him getting good starts. I see him you know, in really good shape. I see him holding the pace. I don't see him trying to take people out. And look what he's getting done. He goes 6'9 the last two weeks, and that's really impressive. I have nothing bad to say for that. So good for him, good for his team, good for Tony Alessi, good for Mike Genova, good for everybody involved over there. Um, you know, he's, he's riding well and, uh, I, I like to see privateer efforts paying off. So good for them. Number nine, Dylan Ferrandis, And I usually will pull people off the power rankings if they don't race, but I don't know what to do with Ferrandis Cause I don't know if he's coming back. Okay. So if Ferrandis is out for the rest of supercross, I'm pulling him. Okay. I don't know what he's going to do. I could absolutely see him not racing again until Paula, which would be the end of May. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, right? I I don't talk to anybody over there weekly. I do talk to Jimmy Button sometimes, but I don't know what their plan is. I don't even know if they know what their plan is. But I'm going to leave him at nine for now. I think he's he should be in the top ten if he's healthy. If he comes back, he goes immediately back into the top ten. And if we don't see him till outdoors, then guess what? Somebody else is going to move up in here. But, you know, with a jammed wrist, I don't know how serious that is, right? That could be... I needed a weekend off and I'll see you at Seattle. Or it could be, no, I'm going to take three weeks off and then we're going to start riding outdoors all the time. Anyway, so whatever. We'll see. Uh, But I have Ferrandis at nine. That's really the only notes I had on him. Number eight, I have Dean Wilson. And, you know, my notes here, I I wrote be opportunistic. And I think that's key for Dean because if you look at his season, before, you know, this string of injuries and guys pulling out of the series and whatever else is going on, he had been – a nine to ten place guy. That was really where he slotted in. We had tons and tons of racing to tell us that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's respectable. He makes a lot of money to be ninth and tenth place. Good for him. I don't want to. I don't want it to seem like that's a slight against him because it's not. The upside now is that you look at the field and you see and out, Ferrandis out. Um, We're starting to see guys go down, big crashes, like Mookie almost hurt himself, that huge Webb Sexton crash. We're just seeing more chaos come into the 450 class. You know, all those weeks of predictability and uh, the most healthy 450 class that we've seen maybe ever, that stuff is starting to catch up to us. We see Brayton go down, miss the weekend. We see Bogle get cleaned out by Brayton's bike, almost miss the race, so The point is, is that if Dino can stay at that level where he was like getting those ninths, those ninths could turn into six, five, four, right? And that's, that's getting it done. In this class, you get top fives, you're battling for top fives. Good things will happen to you. You'll make a ton of money. You will get factory contracts again for next year. um, And that's, that's the opportunity that is coming for Dean. If he can just continue to stay upright and put in really good weekends and, I was talking with Paul Parabinos, who's very close with Dean, about this very dynamic. And they know it, right? They know that where he's been finishing, all he has to do is just stay on that pace and allow the situation to unfold in front of you. You don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to step out. You don't have to change the world with your riding. As these guys crash, as these guys start to pull out of the series and and start thinking about outdoors, guess what? You get to start sliding up in the results. And this is the same thing that happens every single year, right? Guys like, look at guys like Clayson and Starling, and all, they're all sliding forward because other guys are having issues. This has been going on for as long as I've been following this sport. It was, I was a huge benefactor of it in my own racing. Like the last five or six races of the series, I wasn't even stressing about qualifying anymore because I, you know, I knew that the field had thinned out so much that I was getting in. I was more worried about, okay, I've got to make the most of this and I've got to get myself into the top 10 because these opportunities don't come along all the time and I need to make the most of it. So that's the same thing. When I say be opportunistic for Dino, that's what I mean. Put in your best rides. Don't waste weekends. Like he wasted, um, Detroit, right? He crashed in the whoops. There were, it was wide open for him to go get like a fifth, right? Where Brayton finished and he crashed. So, He's got to take that out of, it, out of the equation, right? He can't be his own worst enemy when the situation really lines up nicely for him. Number seven, Marvin Muskan. He got, you know, had a great weekend, um, one of the best rides of his season so far, but I don't know what to make of this season for, for Marvin. I've seen incredibly good riding, and I've seen epic meltdowns, mid-Mate event. So I don't know if it's the new chassis. I don't know if it's Marvin himself. I don't know. That's what it comes down to. I'm just going to leave it there. I don't know what to do with him. He could be 10th one weekend or third the next weekend, and I just shrug my shoulders at both of them because I've seen both of those things for him this year. Nothing wrong with it. I just don't know what to make of it. I don't have any expert analysis because the range, his range, is incredibly wide right now. I just don't know what to do with that. Uh, number six. Oh, the last one note I wanted to make on Marvin I think he's going to end up doing World Supercross next year, right? If you're looking at guys that are a perfect candidate to go race World Supercross, it would be Marvin Muskan. So watch for that development to happen. You know, he's from France, has a big global following. He's at the end of his career. Like, everything lines up. Him, Brayton, guys like that are perfect fits for, uh, for World Supercross. Number five, I have Mookie and... I mean, this is the best we've ever seen, Mookie, right? I mean, that crash was ugly, and he is very lucky to have gotten up and been okay and actually finished eighth. I didn't think he was going to finish at all. I thought DNF was happening. I was already counting fantasy points of my guys moving up and past him. Um, but that didn't happen. He got up and, and continued on, and was, he's was actually like trying to put in decent laps and got eighth. So credit to him, uh, but he's got to find a way to take those crashes out. He can't have those huge crashes because everything is going his direction right now and you don't want to interrupt that momentum and that progress that he's showing, right? Alden Baker's program is clearly working for Mookie and he's getting better and better and better and you need to let that improvement unfold over time. Um, So thankfully he's okay and thankfully we'll get to see more of that that come down the line. Number four, I have Justin Barsha. And I mean, he was a... he was a story of drama this weekend, right? There was uh, the incident with Jason Anderson, and then Steve and I were arguing about it on the review pod or whatever, and I don't want to get into an ar- another argument about it or whatever. My point, right, and if you look at social media, you're going to see everyone in the world pointing to the Barsha Anderson incident and then the McAdoo-Jet Lawrence incident and saying they're the same thing, and why didn't Jason Anderson just cut under him the same way that Jet lawrence did and they're identical and everything they're not the same though that's the thing like i i couldn't even engage on social media because if you think they're the same then we're not probably not going to agree and i don't have time to argue i didn't feel well and that's fine steve and i you know we made our peace with it my basic point is this though okay if you go back and watch, and I posted pictures side by side pictures of this on Twitter, it was about as much engagement as I wanted. If you look at how far back Cameron Mcadoo is, um, Cameron McAdoo is to, to Jet Lawrence compared to how far back Justin Barcia is to Jason Anderson, that is the reason they are totally different scenarios. Okay, I understand that they're the same corner. I understand that the response of the rider in front was totally different. But that response was a result of the distance between the two riders, okay? So how this goes, when Jet is in front of Cameron McAdoo, he knows and he can hear and feel. I don't know even know how to describe accurately how you feel them. It's just like a sixth sense, but it's a combination of your sound, right? You hear the bike behind them coming out of the corner, accelerating over the triple. And you, years and years of racing, you understand how that distance is calculated. Like that's just an innate sense that riders develop. Okay. So Jet knows McAdoo's right behind him. He can feel him to his right when he lands. Okay. When McAdoo goes straight in there, Jet understands that he's right behind him. And if he goes, if he swings left and pivots immediately under him, he can undercut that move, right? We've seen it a million times that it was a brilliant move by Jet, but it's one we've seen done a lot. Okay. Okay. The difference here is if you go back and look at how far back Barsha was to Anderson, he was way back. I mean, I'm going to say triple the distance, maybe four times the distance of comparatively to the other move that everybody thinks was exactly the same. And why that matters is when Anderson is going over the triple, he's not even considering Barsha making a move because Barsha's way too far back. He is not in striking distance right there, okay? So the only way that Barsha can make that move is to land and then dive bomb across the inside of the corner sideways, right? Barsha didn't even turn yet because he was so late getting there. Also, he's so late, Anderson is already at the exit. He's past the apex. He's exiting the corner like at full throttle, okay? So Anderson is like... There's no way he's making a move here. He's not in position. He's too far back. Barsha is like, well, screw it. I'm Justin Barsha, and I'm just going to make a move anyway, okay? And that, that's a very generic way to a- approach how Barsha did, but that's pretty much what he did because anybody that's been in that dynamic before would tell you, you need to be close to make a clean block pass there, and Barsha was nowhere near close, right? So every decision accordingly changes. Anderson's like, okay, I have room. Because Barsha's pretty far back. So I'm going to hit this corner the way I normally would. I don't have to ride defensively here because Barsha is not in a position where he's looking to make a move. Well, Barsha, being Barsha, says, screw it. I'm literally going to land and swerve right, and I'm going to meet him at the exit sideways, okay, broadside. And that's exactly what happened. That is a really critical, critically important aspect of this is that he was not even turned, right? Like he is sideways in the middle of the track where Anderson comes out of that corner with a handful of throttles. Like, Oh my God, what are you doing in the line? Like, this is not what should be happening. And I say should be happening. That's up to them to decide, but it was not the typical maneuver, right? Nobody, I don't say nobody, but most people in that scenario are never going for that pass in that manner. Right, you need to be closer to make a block pass there. That's actually going to work, and that's why everybody's saying, you know, Steve included. Everybody's saying Anderson, you just need to look up. Well, he's exiting a corner on the very outside, right? He's not expecting Justin Barsha to cut across the the inside of the corner and meet on the outside sideways. That is just not something that most people would expect at that level. Okay, if it's the last corner of the LCQ and or you're trying to win that Yamaha privateer race that Steve's putting on or whatever. I get okay, all bets are off. That that's fine. You're trying to kill the guy, good for you. But this is a battle for the lead. I don't know, halfway through the race. Like there was no urgency for that type of maneuver in my opinion. And Barsha can tell me to piss off that I don't know what I'm talking about. Great. Good for him, good for all of his supporters. I don't care. This is my opinion. This is from watching this sport for, you know, going on 40 years now of watching these dynamics and being in them myself. And that's basically the reason why they're not the same is Barsha was way too far back to attempt a move like that. And and I, I don't talk to Jason Anderson, not because I don't like him or anything. We just don't talk regularly, but in my, I would almost guarantee you if you asked Jason Anderson, did you even consider a move there possible? He'd be like, no, like I would have never thought he would try it there. like, that's why Anderson was hitting that line the way he did. If Barsha was closer, you would never see Anderson leave the door open like that. And I hesitate to even say leave the door open because it wasn't like Barsha was in a passing position and he and Anderson needed to protect himself, okay? That's the most important part of this is that Anderson was not even thinking about a move being possible there. and. I mean, if you want to look at the bottom line, good for Barsha, right? He made it. He got a podium. I mean, he got fined. He lost points. But in the end, if it's just a binary dynamic and you're like, did the pass happen or not? It did. You know, did Anderson end up on the ground? He did. And I'll also say that Anderson, if anybody should be expecting dirty riding or hard contact, it's probably Anderson because he dishes it out regularly. So I don't feel bad for Anderson, but I do, uh, I I really, really take objection to people saying it's exactly the same. And I saw Swap Moto Lives post and like 70 comments in a row of, this is the same. And I just shake my head because it's not, it's just not. And uh, if you don't understand that it's not, that's okay. Like I don't care really. So anyway, moving on. Barsha at four. He rode great. Um, he's battling for second in points. I don't want this to feel like it's condemnation on Justin Barsha because it's not. He is having a fantastic season, and he should be proud of it. I just don't like moves like that. I never have. I never will. It left the leader on the ground. The leader of the race was on the ground. I don't love moves like that. It, you know, if you go going to make a block pass and Anderson miscalculates, eh, that happens, right? But that, to me, was not your prototypical block pass at all. Cooper Webb at three. And, I mean, Webb is just in survival mode, right? He's hurt. He's a broken finger. Um, You know, I don't know exactly what all the other injuries are. He's got crack stuff and all kinds of soft tissue injuries. Uh, But for him to even be out there, I thought was was really gritty. And he reminds me of Chad Reed in that way, where they just ride through injuries and where most people would be like, man, I got to take the weekend off. I'm just, I, I can't do it. They find a way to get it done. And uh, that's really commendable. They are really, really tough guys, right? Not I don't mean they're getting, to go fight in the octagon, but you look at the amount of pain that they are willing to ride through and the, the just adversity that those guys overcome. Um, I've seen it firsthand with Chad and you're seeing it with, uh, with Cooper Webb now because most people, most people wouldn't have been out there. That's just a fact. Most people would have taken the weekend off. Jason Anderson at two. I think I covered him enough. I think he probably wins the race. Honestly, if... Uh, he doesn't get taken out there. I think he would have had a great battle with Tomac, but um, he looked great all day. I, I really thought he rebounded nicely from uh, you know the, the get-off in Detroit. And I picked him to win last week on a bunch of my platforms. I uh, wrote my column. I picked him to win. I really thought he would bounce back, and I felt like I was on the way to being right. And then, uh, yeah, he went down. So anyway, Anderson's still having a great season. The points are starting to slip a little bit on him here, but um, I, th- I still think he's going to finish really strong. Number one, obviously, who else? Eli Tomac. Uh, I mean, he's he's got a huge lead here. He's fully in control of this series. When I was talking about Jet earlier, where he's just not having to push the envelope to win, that's where Eli is, right? He's just allowing these races to unfold. And if he wins, great. If he doesn't, that's okay too. Because every weekend that continues to unfold, he's extending his points lead and as long as disaster doesn't strike, he doesn't have any reason to take chances. He can make a ton of money, finish on the podium, win when the wins are there, and take podiums when they're not, and guess what? We'll see you at Salt Lake and he'll get his uh, he'll get a second Supercross championship. So I have nothing but praise to give towards Eli Tomak. He took a gamble to uh, to do that Monster Star Yamaha deal. He took a pay cut to do that Monster Star Yamaha deal and it was a significant one right? It's not my job to put his finances on front street, but he took a lot less money to ride that Yamaha. And, uh, clearly it was for a reason and clearly it's paying off for him. So I want to do two things. Uh, I want to do the pro glow question of the week, and then I want to cover a little bit of uh, MXGP and a tiny bit of MotoGP. But before we do again, thank you to all of our sponsors, Pirelli tires Plum Creek funding, get your house refied now or get your house bought because rates are going up like nonstop. And if you watch any, if you watch the news, you watch CNBC, we're getting a lot of interest rate hikes coming. They're saying like six or seven more just this year alone, which means that your interest rate that you pay for your house is going up accordingly. So you need to make a move. If you're not in the market, fine, whatever. But if you think you're going to be, if your interest rate is like, you know, five or six, you need to get it down. It's you can still get it in the fours right now, maybe even lower, but you need to act quickly. Guts Racing, check out gutsracing.com. Got to see Andy Gregg last weekend in Indy. His uh, his kid was racing the KTM Junior Supercross Challenge, so uh, that's pretty awesome. I could just see how excited he was to be there and and take part in that. So, thanks to Andy and Guts Racing, uh, Fast Foundry reach out to Robert Carrico, to go to fastfoundry.com, see how he can help your business today, get more efficient, make sure as we head into this high inflation, high interest rate environment, make sure your business is ready for it, right? If you have, maybe your company took on debt during uh, the, pa- the pandemic, you need to make sure that your company is as efficient as possible because if it's a variable interest rate, you're going to need to make sure you got some money because that interest rate's gonna go up. Works Connection. Promo code JT21, I need to ask if that's still current. But anyway, Pro Launch Start device, if you try to use that promo code and it doesn't work, please reach out to me and I will get with them and get it uh, dialed in. But the Pro Launch Start device, whole shot again. You know who uses it? Jet Lawrence. You know what he did? Whole it. Got me 15 points in Pulp MX Fantasy for the first of the finish line. But Works Connection is a choi- Is the choice of the factory teams for good reason. Uh, it's the choice of Monster Star Yamaha. It's the choice of factory Honda. Those guys choose the best. They choose work connection. ProGlo. Moto15 is your promo code. And I have the question of the week here. Let's do it right now before we fin- even finish the sponsors. So those of you who try to fast forward through the sponsors, you're missing out. Okay, so this comes from Lieutenant Colonel Justin Puckett. And thank you for your service, sir, by the way. Uh, he says, we're just past Indy. We only have six left. At what point do riders begin to focus on longer motos during the week and getting ready for outdoors? I know it varies from rider to rider, but you alluded to this last week during the review pod, and we're talking about Ferrandis maybe starting to focus on outdoors. In a normal year where the title is competitive until the first until the final few weeks, what is the norm? So um, great question. Uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier, as you mentioned with Ferrandis again but they should probably already be in that mode a little bit, okay? Normal, April one, you are riding outdoors a little bit. Like one day a week, you're starting to work in, because it takes a long time to get your outdoor legs underneath you. You have to go testing, you need to get used to the heat and the humidity and all those things. Um, So it's a slow transition. Now, Ferrandis, he may already be in that mode, we don't know, but these other guys, it's going to ramp up immediately after this Seattle round. And what will happen is a lot of these guys that are flying to Seattle, okay? They're going to fly from Florida to Seattle. Long flight. Sucks. They'll get to Seattle, race this weekend, and then on Sunday, instead of flying all the way home, they will go to California on Sunday, and they will start their outdoor testing on Monday, okay? They'll test outdoors all week with their teams, not, you know, Monster Star Yamaha being the, the one outlier there because their whole setup got moved to Georgia, they would go back. But all the other teams, Cali, all the factory teams, they will go to California and they'll ride, you know, Paula, they'll ride State Fair, Paris, Glen Helen, whatever, get a ton of testing done over the next, I don't know, for sure a full week. Whether they stay the following week, I would say is unlikely, depending on your championship position. But absolutely, they will be testing outdoors next week. And that's kind of the the kickoff for it. And what they're really trying to do is get a base setting built. So then their teams can go back. They can build parts. They can develop more based off of the feedback that all that testing gave them because it, they sometimes they have to go to Japan and build some of these parts. Sometimes they need to reach out to sponsors. What if they need different linkage? What if they need different clamps, right? All those things have to be given time to get built, to get shipped, to get back, test more. Um, so that's going to be your first real, uh, rendezvous with outdoor testing would be Monday. So if you're in Southern California, watch for all those guys, they will be at the track. I would say Monday at, at the earliest Tuesday at Paula is probably uh, go time for most of them. And then in Thursday morning at Glen Helen, I can bet you would see most of the, uh, the factory elite there on Thursday. So thank you to, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Puckett there, and we will get you out, uh, the, uh, pro-glo prize pack also want to thank um uh, grandstone boots got to wear those um last weekend on sunday wore them sunday night didn't feel great but still warm and then uh yeah fly racing of course my, my day job so let's jump into mxgp before we wrap this thing up i mean mxgp class it's it's pretty much just geyser's world right now right we're all just kind of floating around inside it he's won every round so far and he's clearly the best guy It doesn't mean he's infallible, doesn't mean he's going to win every moto, doesn't mean he won't crash some, but I think anybody who's not pointing at him as being the champion this year, you're silly, right? The only thing that's going to stop him is injury, because the other guys, as good as they are, they're not as good as him. Renault's great, and I need to apologize to him and everyone a part of Yamaha because I didn't see this coming. I was very, very down on this decision. I thought it was premature. I didn't think he would do well. I thought he should have stayed in MX2 and defended his title. And I have been dead wrong at every step. And every time I watch him, I just shake my head at myself because he is, he's making me look really foolish with that opinion. Um, He just looks great out there. He looks, you know, mature on the bike. He's not out of control. He's making smart decisions. He's making aggressive passes on guys like Prado, who I consider to be significantly better than Renault. Like, make no mistake, I consider Jorge Prado to be significantly better than Maxime Renault. And I guess that's not the case. I guess I just have to take the L on that one because Renault seems to be the real deal. Like, he is doing all the right things. He gets a good start, he runs up front. He gets a bad start, he moves to the front. So it doesn't seem to matter. And he's not riding like a rookie at all, so good for him. I uh, I was way wrong. Uh, you know, I, I apologize to everybody, a part of that deal, and everybody who was shaking their head at me, saying I was gonna be wrong. Well, guess what? You were right. Jorge Prado, I just I have meh meh written on my notes. Um, I mean, I think everybody expected more, right? It's not. It hasn't been a catastrophe. It just hasn't been great, and I thought Prado would be a championship contender. Like I thought if anybody was going to come in and beat Geiser with Febra and hurlings hurt, it was going to be Jorge Prado. And that is not, that just hasn't developed. Um, I don't know if, I don't know enough to know if, you know, if if he's suffering from something, maybe his off season didn't go the way he wanted it to, or maybe he's just not as good as we thought he was going to be. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I really think That he is underperforming and he could tell me to piss off and say he's going to get better. That's fine because I would say, okay, good, because I think you are better than what you're showing us. I do not think you should be getting passed by Renault and getting pushed backwards. I just don't. So look for Prado to improve, right? We're going back to Europe next week and we're going to, to Portugal. We're going to some different tracks, some harder pack tracks that I think Prado rides better. And maybe he turns it around. I don't think some of these tracks are the perfect ones for him, right? He is a very precise, precision-based, meticulous rider. And what I mean by that is you don't ever really see him put a wheel wrong. Um, he's just He has a lot of bike skill. But on a track like Argentina that's so fast and so open, that doesn't come into play as much, okay? You need to be, you know, aggression is really rewarded at a track like argentina and that's much more renault style that's much more Geiser style they are not scared to hang it out where i don't think that's prado's game i think on a really ruddy track you look at like the the race he always wins his home race in spain you look at races like turkey uh races like teuchenthal those tracks to me make a lot more sense i think you'll see it at saint john d'angeli in june those tracks work for what prado does well and I think that's why you saw him better at Matterley, too. Matterley's a good track for that. Um, he was much more competitive at Matterley than he was this weekend, for instance. So just watch for that. Let's see if I'm right or wrong on that. Um, I don't want to ride him off just yet because I think there are a lot of tracks that are going to work for him. And I, I think he is going to win motos. I, I don't know if he's going to win a ton of overalls, but I think he's going to win some individual races and uh, take some of the pressure off himself, let's say. MX2 class, um, it's, it's developing, right? Vial was my championship pick, and he finally looked like the Tom Vial that we expected, or I expected anyway. Jago Geertz has been better than expected. Um, he did lose the overall to Tom this weekend, but he looks back on his 2018-2019 form, finally, okay? Now, this championship looks like it's, it's going to heat up some because both of them are getting on their game now, where Tom Bial was a hot mess early in the season, crashing all over the place, right? You see Langenfelder coming in and win. Geertz was hurt coming in, um, like was going to miss the first round entirely because of injury. So it's it's been all over the damn map with these guys. But leaving Argentina, you can start to see how this is going to go. I really think you're going to see... Geertz and Vial separate themselves on most weekends. I just think they are better riders overall. That doesn't mean there's not going to be outlier races where Guadagnini and Langenfelder and Gifting and maybe Conrad Muse and some of these other guys can get involved, but I think on a week in, week out basis, you're going to see those two establish themselves as the elite and who wins the championship. I don't know. It's going to be fun to watch, but at least I think we're going to have a battle for it. That's it for uh, MXGP. I go over to Portugal next weekend, by the way. Um, so I go to Seattle this weekend, go back home to Boise, and then go to Portugal on Wednesday for uh, my first MXGP round of the year. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, love getting to go to Europe and love getting to be a part of the television crew for MXGP. You know, they're they're really kind to me. Paul Malin does a great job and makes me feel really welcome uh, kind of invading his – his television booth, um, but I can't wait. I've never actually never been to Portugal, so that'll be a first for me. Um, and I'm running out of countries for first timer list, um, so let's let's check another box there for Portugal. MotoGP really quickly. Uh, I mean, I, what a weekend, right? You had F1, you had MotoGP, MXGP, and Supercross, and that's partially why it took me so long to get to this because I needed to watch everything. Um, and I finally finished the last of the MXGP this morning, but. I mean, what a series, right? You got a wet race. I mean, Oliveira wins, which I did not see coming at all. Uh, And then you see Fabio strike back, you know, a wet race, which he's not the best at. But you see Fabio show some promise. He's running up front all weekend. He gets a podium. Uh, So I think, you know, Fabio reestablished himself in this series where some of the other guys are having a tough time. Right. Marquez's crash. Dear God. I mean, literally when I saw it, I'm like, he's done like his his career is over because if you follow MotoGP you know how bad his arm injury was how long he was out and how tenuous this return has been and then you see that crash and you're like I literally I just like oh my god it's over like it's over and thankfully it's not right he had a concussion he's still dealing with this dizziness uh issue which I don't know if that's going to keep him out for the next race or what I think they go to uh they go to South America? Where the hell I don't know where they go. Um I think they go to South America next weekend. But I'm just hoping that Marquez can hang in there because he makes this series so much better and he's my favorite rider and he's having a hell of a time here. So let's see what uh let's see what the next month or so brings for Marquez. But man, can you just stay on your bike please? Because you're ruining my weekends. And I know that's a I'm I'm kidding. That's a very selfish thing to say, but um, I hate to see that guy go flipping across the track in a high side again. Uh, Jack Miller narrowly missed the podium. Uh, You know, Jack's probably the one friend I have in that series as far as a rider that, you know, he would, if I walked up to him, he knows exactly who I am and we would talk. Um, The other guys I've met, but I wouldn't consider them friends. Uh, But Jack is a a great guy and I love to see him. You know, I cheer for him nonstop. And I thought he had a podium coming. Uh, You know, when those wet conditions, you know, showed up, oh my God, this is Jack time. He's going to win. And uh, I think he just wore out his tires a little bit and didn't want to throw away a bunch of points and had to settle for fourth. So, great series unfolding. You truly don't know what's going to happen week in and week out, which I think is one of the biggest, you know, upside variables in any championship is you don't you want parity. You want when the gate drops or the green flag flies or the lights go out or whatever you're watching, you don't want to know what's going to happen. And that, to me, is what creates the most interest is, you know, the the lack of predetermined results. And we've seen it you know, you could argue that F1 has some of that. Maybe, maybe not. Supercross for years did. You know, when, when somebody's dominating, it's almost, it feels predetermined, even though it's not. Um, and that's that's just not what we have in MotoGP right now. So I love that aspect of it. We have a little bit of that in MXGP. So hopefully when Febra and Hurlings get back, that goes away. Um, but that's that dynamic I hate, where I can almost tell you within real a really close range of exactly who's going to finish where. So that's it for this week. I apologize for this being late. I really felt awful the last couple of days, and uh, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Feeling like that, I had no energy to do it, and I, my voice was just horrific as well. Um, yesterday, so we're back. I will get another one out on Sunday when I get back from Seattle. Thank you to everybody for listening to this. Um, if you've gotten to go to a Supercross, and I've gotten to meet you this year, I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's been a, a pretty awesome year so far. I'm really enjoying it and uh, looking forward to the last few rounds, and then uh, might have some news on Lucas Oil Cross, some of my plans for Lucas Oil as well coming soon. So lots of things happening for me right now. Not mad at it. See you.